BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We start with the wildfires burning in rural Northern California, especially the Dixie Fire. It's the second largest blaze in California history and has burned more than 482,000 acres and destroyed more than 800 homes and other structures. Joining us now is CAP Radio Scott Rod, who's been in Plumas County. Scott, we've heard a lot about the destruction of the small gold rush era town of Greenville, but how vulnerable are are some of the other small towns you've been to? You know, this is an intense fire, and it's it's certainly touched on a number of other communities up here. Greenville is not the only small town of its type in this area, but fortunately there are some that have avoided the destruction of the Dixie Fire. Uh, I spent all day yesterday in a town called Chester. It's right on the banks of Lake Almanor, and the, the fire remarkably went just all the way around this town. If you look at the fire map, you could see it just barely skirted around it. And from what I've been told, it was a combination of uh, a favorable strategic location of the town, but also hard work from firefighters and also uh, some folks who remained behind who were keeping an eye on spotting and embers flying into the town. So a positive note there after seeing you know so many other communities like Greenville, facing significant damage from this fire. And how are evacuations going? I know thousands of people have been asked to evacuate. Um, Are they doing it? And are some people staying behind? So I've been told by CAL FIRE that upwards of 30,000 people have evacuated. Uh, So it's a tremendous number of people picking up and moving and figuring out another place to lay their heads. However, of course, with any evacuation, not everyone leaves. Um, I I did speak with uh, a number of folks yesterday in Chester who decided to stay behind. Uh, One of them is Joe Waterman. He said that he wanted to keep an eye on his property and the property of others in his community. Here's what he said. Uh, You know, I'm just thankful that we're we're still here um, as a community. And as folks come back, there will be a little bit of shock and, and, um, you know, that's understandable. But I'm confident that we'll pull together and and make this as good as we can make it. Um, Of course, it's going to look a little different, but it's the way it is. We have to be able to move on with that. 
And in this attitude of optimism, but also, you know, a pragmatic outlook, uh, it, it seemed to be shared among just about everyone else I spoke to that they believe that the town of Chester will be able to bounce back. It's a town that really relies on, on the tourism industry, but they recognize it's going to take some time. And, you know, the next couple months, years, it's going to look a bit different than what Chester looked like in the past. And what type of fire activity did crews face yesterday? And what generally did you see when you were out and about? So I was on the west side of fire, and that, that area has been a little more quiet. You know, there certainly still is fire burning there, um, but it's more so spotting and and uh, just not as intense as other sp- other areas of the fire. On the other side of Lake Almanor, on the east side of the fire, that has been very active and at times unpredictable. Gusting winds have been kicking up, you know, fire activity and and sending crews running from one place to another, trying to build out containment lines and and put out spot fires. So this this fire is still very much active uh, on different parts of it, though. Uh, Some areas are a little more dormant than others. And what should conditions look like today and the rest of the week? So it's expecting that there will be a warming trend throughout this week, which uh, means more challenging conditions for firefighting. Uh, There could also be some dry lightning that comes through. Uh, So that could create, you know, additional challenges, certainly if other, uh, other fires spark as a result of that which would pull crews away from the main fire to try to put out any additional new fires that would start. Uh, and there's always sort of a trade-off when, fire, when fighting fires. You know, conditions will change, and sometimes they can add good and bad opportunities. Just one example, uh, yesterday there was a pretty heavy smoke presence, which uh, hampered the ability of aircraft to attack the fire. But at the same time, that also adds favorable conditions to keep things a little less hot, uh, and it allows for, in some ways on the ground, a little better firefighting conditions. So the smoke is expected to clear today, which will bring in aircraft ability, but it also means on the ground, firefighting will be a little more challenging. All right. That was Scott Rod, who's covering the Dixie Fire for CAP Radio. Scott, thanks so much for this update and be careful. All right. Thank you. While the Dixie Fire destroyed much of the Gold Rush-era town of Greenville last week, several other rural communities in Plumas County have been devastated by the wildfire. Plumas County Sheriff Todd John spoke about that to the California Report. It's not just Greenville, it's Indian Falls, and and we had folks that lost their uh, houses down in the area, Rich Bar and um, up in Canyon Dam, and it's a small enough county that everyone has ties to everyone. Several people were unaccounted for in Greenville after the blaze tore through the town. They've all been located safely, but Sheriff John says his office gets several calls each day with people inquiring about the whereabouts of someone who might be missing. His deputies verify each tip to make sure that a person is safe. The sheriff says evacuation orders and warnings often change on a daily basis, and residents need to heed those warnings. Some people have refused to leave their properties. We have a lot of cattle ranches around and things like that where they have green meadows and pastures and things like that. I, I can understand why folks would stay in an instance like that. Do I recommend it? No, but I, I at least understand that. But there are some areas where folks are in very thick, wooded areas with one uh, ingress and egress route 
And those are very problematic. Those are the areas that are going to get someone killed when you choose not to leave. Sheriff John says he was encouraged by a meeting he and others in Plumas County had with Governor Newsom over the weekend. The governor promised that the state and federal governments will provide the necessary assistance to help communities rebuild once the fire is contained. The head of a special trust in charge of distributing billions of dollars to 70,000 PG&E fire victims says they will never be fully compensated for all they've lost. The comment came in an interview with the California Report's Lily Jamali, who joins me now. And Lily, we're talking about people who lost loved ones, homes and businesses and fires PG&E caused between 2015 and 2018. That's right, Saul. So you have people who've been waiting for as long as six years. And the Fire Victim Trust set up in PG&E's bankruptcy has been determining the dollar value of what all of those people are owed. So far, they've distributed $599 million to about 18,000 people. I recently spoke with trustee John Trotter about how the trust has been staffing up with claims administrators in order to do that. Then I asked him whether fire victims will ever be made whole. Here's what he told me. They never will. They will never be made whole. That's what bankruptcy means. It means we don't have enough money to make everybody whole. The reason stems back to the structure of the deal between PG&E and Lawyers for Fire Victims. It called for $6.75 billion to be delivered into this trust as cash for fire victims, but the other half of their compensation was promised as hundreds of millions of shares of PG&E itself. That part hasn't gone very well. PG&E stock has fallen quite a bit this summer. The company recently told state regulators its equipment may have caused both the flood Fire and the Dixie Fire. The Fly Fire merged with the Dixie Fire, which is burning now in Northern California. Here's trustee John Trotter again. The stock keeps changing in value. So not only I don't know with any definity what the amount of the claims will ultimately be, what, what's the total amount, and I don't know because the stock changes daily, the amount of money I have to pay those claims. That's why we're paying only paying 30%. So for those who have now gotten a determination letter from the trust saying, this is what we've determined you are owed, they are only getting 30% on those claims. Trotter said he hopes that that will increase to 50% by this fall. But the bottom line is that the total pool of money is far short of what they need to pay everyone. Saul? Thanks, Lily. That was the California Report's Lily Jamali. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
as the Delta variant of COVID continues to surge across the country and state, California public health authorities are reporting a spike in hospitalizations. In the last two weeks, hospitalizations have just about doubled in the state, reaching nearly 6,000 as of Sunday. Much of that total increase has occurred in Southern California, like Los Angeles, Orange, San Diego, San Bernardino, and Riverside counties. But the increase isn't just in the southern part of the state. Since last month, the number of COVID hospitalizations has doubled in both Sacramento and Fresno counties, and the Bay Area has seen a similar increase. Public health officials note that the vast majority of COVID hospitalizations are still occurring among the unvaccinated, further proof that the vaccines are working to help fight off serious symptoms if a person does get infected. We should also note that while California has seen a steady rise in hospitalizations, the state is still well short of the fall and winter surge. As the Delta variant continues to spread across California, many counties are seeing a huge surge in demand for COVID testing. In response, San Diego County is opening new testing sites in areas that have been hard hit by the pandemic. Denise Foster is chief nursing officer for the county and is leading its COVID testing and vaccine efforts. We have um, increased our capacity at our existing sites, including our state sites, have opened up additional lanes to provide access to the community. Um, we've opened up sites at our public health centers. Those are pretty small clinics, so we can't do a ton, but that does increase access points for the community. The number of COVID tests administered in San Diego County has tripled since the start of July. California Attorney General Rob Bonta has filed manslaughter charges against a former LAPD officer who allegedly shot and killed a man with mental disabilities in 2019. The ex-cop was arrested yesterday for the incident inside a Corona Costco, nearly two years after Riverside County declined to press charges against him. KCRW's Tara Salvador Sanchez, a seven-year veteran of the LAPD at the time of the shooting, faces charges of involuntary manslaughter and assault with a semi-automatic firearm. He's accused of opening fire during an altercation with 32-year-old Kenneth French inside the crowded Costco. French, who was described by his family as nonverbal and having an intellectual disability, reportedly shoved Sanchez near a table for food samples. The ex-cop told LAPD investigators he feared for his life. He then fired several shots into the store, killing French and injuring his parents. Initially, the then-off-duty cop avoided prosecution by the Riverside County District Attorney, with a grand jury declining to indict him three months after the incident. However, the case is now being handled by the State Attorney General's office. The charges come after the California AG Rob Bonta announced in July state investigators would probe fatal police shootings of unarmed civilians. Sanchez's attorney calls the arrest a political stunt. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And personal capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, August 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Remember, you can also listen and subscribe to our podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Again, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.